It's Wednesday, September 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A coronavirus vaccine may be on its way soon, but that doesn't mean that people are ready to take it. According to an Axios-Ipsos poll, 60% of people say they don't want to take a first-generation vaccine, in part because of how it's been politicized. Margaret Taleb, politics and White House editor at Axios, joins us for how resistance to taking a COVID vaccine is growing. Next, thousands of U.S. troops will be taking part in a COVID-19 early detection study with the aim of understanding what it means to be asymptomatic and also catching illnesses before they get worse. Soldiers will wear bio-measuring devices that monitor small changes in blood oxygen levels, heartbeat, or respiratory patterns. Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, K-12 enrollment has been decreasing in recent years, but during the pandemic, kindergarten numbers are really low. Parents are frustrated by putting their young children in front of screens for their first year of school and instead are opting for extended preschool, learning pods, or skipping it altogether. Mackenzie Mays, reporter at Politico, joins us for how the pandemic is creating a rare gap year for some. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We will distribute a vaccine. We will defeat the virus. We will end the pandemic. And we will enter a new era of unprecedented prosperity, cooperation, and peace. Joining us now is Margaret Taleb, politics and White House editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about the vaccine. Uh, You know, a lot of people have made this the kind of final thing. Once the vaccine comes, everything will be back to normal. We'll be able to get our lives going again. But there's been a lot of kind of conflict with the vaccine. How soon is it going to come? Is it being pushed out too early? And uh, there at Axios, you guys have been conducting regular polls on people's attitudes toward the vaccine. And in your latest poll, It seems that uh, there's a resistance growing to the vaccine. A a larger share of Americans are saying that they're not as eager to try the first-generation coronavirus vaccine. Margaret, tell us a little bit about what the polls are saying about this. We have been measuring since March people's attitudes towards the pandemic and how it's been impacting them. And this is everything from, like, how's your mental health to are you going out to eat? And more recently, we've been including some questions about the vaccine or the promise of a vaccine. And what we've seen is over the course of the past month, a dramatic and consistent and pretty unmistakable decline. We asked several questions, but I think the most important one is, are you likely to take a first-generation version of the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it becomes available, right? Because it's like, oh, we're all waiting for the vaccine. So it's available. Great. Are you going to take it? And we've seen across the board, overall, a decline from the mid-40s now to 39% of Americans saying they'd be willing to take it. But look at this, a really steep decline among Democrats from the mid-50s down to 43%. And a decline among Republicans from the low to mid 40s down to 33 percent. So a really consistent decline across party lines. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One, Democrats and Republicans almost never behave the same way about anything to do with the coronavirus. And we've seen this like month after month after month. If there's a split, the most clear split is almost always likely to be along partisan lines. But the other is a very interesting cross trend. There's another number that we haven't mentioned yet, and it's independence. If you were an independent, you were around 45% likely to say you would take this first-generation vaccine as soon as it's available. 
as of late August, a month ago. Now that number has barely declined at all, from 45% to 43%. So Democrats, independents, and Republicans are all at about the same place right now, less than half willing to touch a first-generation vaccine when it becomes available. But the independents have barely moved at all. And we asked ourselves in our pollsters, why? Why would that be true? And the best conclusion that we have at this point, it looks like it's largely politically driven. Yes, there are some scientific concerns, but it's really that it's been politicized. If you look at what else has happened over the same period of a month, it's that President Trump began putting out this idea that a vaccine could be ready before the end of the year. And as the days went on, he began to say it could even be ready before the election. Then there was a pushback. Scientists, public health officials saying, no way, no way is the vaccine going to be in the American public's hands and probably not even ready, ready before the end of the year, much less before the election. And that is precisely the period of time where we have seen people's interest in being the guinea pigs on this decline. My question is, I'm looking at it as far as people want to reopen, people want to get back to it. But these people that don't want to get these first generation vaccines, all that is, is going to put delays and delays and delays on things. So, you know, it's already going to be a few months after a vaccine is approved before it can get out to the general public, let's say. So everything just kind of pushes things down the line. It it makes me question, are people more comfortable just getting coronavirus naturally and going through it than going through the vaccine route? You know, it, it gets very confusing. That is a behavioral question that's completely unbounded by science. What we know is that when people actually get it or when people have proximity to someone who got it, much less someone who became very ill or died, their understanding of the disease really changes, right? Or the virus really changes. It's one thing to think about it in the abstract. Oh, it's just like the flu. It's not that big a deal. It's another thing if you have had a loved one be on a ventilator or recover and survive and then not be the same like for months again. So this is happening as our children are going back to school or learning remote. If your kid goes back to school, our poll found a third of the people whose kids had returned to school already have had reports like within a couple of weeks of COVID illness or scares inside their school district. And so we know that mask use is really important for reducing um, your susceptibility or your ability to spread it, right? We know that. But from a political perspective, the president has sent such mixed messaging on masks that he has really shifted to a vaccine message. And this notion that, just trust me, we'll get through the election and by then there will be a vaccine. And what we see is that people are not treating the vaccine like it's a silver bullet. Like between a quarter and a third of the people in our survey said they didn't even want to take it at all. That's not the majority, but it's an important number if you're looking for anything approximating the sort of herd immunity that people have talked about. So if you can't inoculate enough people, what would be the impact on society? But beyond that, it's these two trends that you talked about. On the one hand, everybody wants to get back to, quote, normal life. And on the other hand, there are real scientific barriers that are going to slow that moment when we can get back to normal. And then beyond there, is a real question of public trust. How do you get enough of the public? And people are resistant to the idea of taking vaccines for very different reasons. If you actually unpack some of these cross currents, you might not trust vaccines in general. You might not trust pharmaceutical companies. You might not trust President Trump. And you liked the idea of the vaccine until he said it's going to be ready. And then now you're like, oh, I don't want it. Or the other way around. You may put a great deal of trust in what President Trump says and be more likely to take a vaccine if he says that it's safe. And so we know that the numbers add up to a situation of real uncertainty. If you are a government official or a public health official and you want science and reason and consensus to guide the day. But after that, that's about all we know. 
Margaret Talev, politics and White House editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it so much. They've been working with private research to have service members wearing something almost like a Fitbit that measures any changes in respiratory, blood oxygen, saturation levels, and other factors that are sort of precursors to illness. Joining us now is Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Great to be with you. wanted to talk about uh, an interesting study that uh, American troops are going through right now. Basically, what does it mean to be asymptomatic? There's a new study that's trying to look to identify troops that have these kind of barely perceptible symptoms, quarantine them early, and they're hoping, obviously, that this could apply larger. But so they're looking at these slight changes in the body, blood oxygen levels, a bunch of different things. This is kind of a study that was already ongoing, but now they're applying this to COVID-19 research as well. Nancy, tell us a little bit about what this study is supposed to uh, help out with. So as you referenced, the military is keenly interested in figuring out early detection for any kinds of illnesses like the flu, for example, because they have units, for example, special forces deploying to remote areas. And if there's somebody in that unit who could be contagious from flow down the unit, they want to know who that person is and, and eliminate them as early as possible from the possibility of contaminating others. And so to that end, They've been working with private research to have service members wearing something almost like a Fitbit that measures any changes in respiratory, blood oxygen, saturation levels, and other factors that are sort of precursors to illness. So what's happening now is that device and that research, which had started looking at symptoms of the flu, is now being applied to COVID. The idea being that rather than waiting for a fever to show up, if we can find changes in blood oxygen saturation or respiratory or heart rate early on that there might be a pattern that one can see that would offer an early detection before someone shows something more overt and maybe becomes more contagious because they've reached a level where they have a fever. Tell us about the actual study. My understanding is that they're looking for more than 5,000 troops in the coming weeks to join this. And this is something that's going on between the Defense Department and Phillips. They've already started this with a few hundred, upwards of a thousand troops who are wearing this. And what they're doing with these troops is they're not interacting with them directly, but rather they're collecting data. The idea is that the U.S. military offers the option of a large volume of a population. And so they're trying to get to as many troops as possible, hopefully 5,000 is their goal, such that you would have a big data set to look at. And so they're going to be collecting over a period of weeks all these biological, physiological changes, and seeing if they can detect a pattern. I should note that in some of these instances, some of the troops who've worn them have then turned out to test positive for COVID-19. And so there's already sort of some data that they got from that. But I think the idea is that over time, that they'll have such a large amount of data that they can start to draw conclusions and come up with a, a metric for at what point should one be concerned about whether they are sick with COVID-19. To be clear, this does not diagnose someone, but it's intended rather to find sort of early signs that suggest perhaps one should go to the doctor and get properly diagnosed. What do we know about numbers of COVID cases in the military so far? So the military overall since March has had about 43,000 of their service members test positive for COVID-19. And of those, there's been seven deaths among the military, far lower than the statistics for the general population. I think the most sort of famous 
instance of an outbreak of COVID-19 within the U.S. military was aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which is a carrier that was operating in the Pacific when it had an outbreak of more than 1,000, if I recall correctly. That's about a, of a 4,800-member crew. And what's interesting is in that case, many, many of those who tested positive showed no symptoms at all. And so there's already been a real-world sort of challenge for the United States military vis-a-vis COVID. And Practically speaking, what you're seeing in the military is a restriction on movement because of um, concerns about COVID-19. Service members now having to quarantine for two weeks before they go out on deployment. So there's been a real shift in operations because of COVID-19. And that was really triggered, I think, in terms of substantial changes to how the United States military operates by the outbreak on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. But the numbers overall are quite positive from the military's perspective in terms of ratio of total number of cases to deaths compared to the general population. Now, of those 43,000, about a half, maybe more so, a little bit more, have are recovered. So then remember, this is out of a population of about 2 million plus. Is this uh, an opt-in thing for the service members? Because, you know, obviously we're kind of using them as guinea pigs for this type of study, but is this all opt-in for them? So yes and no. I think there are units that are sort of volunteering. I don't think anybody's being asked to wear it who doesn't want to. I think if someone speaks up and says they don't want to wear it, that is an option. But you're getting at a bigger issue, which is the relationship between medicine and the military goes all the way back to the beginning of war itself, because so often the military, because of the injuries you see in war, has been a place, a source for research and understanding of new challenges in terms of medical treatment. I think we saw this most recently in the, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, PTSD, TBI, and of course, amputees and those who have lost limbs and how they recover over the long term. And when a service member had to lose, had to confront amputation, I think at the beginning of the war, there was one understanding. And as those wars progressed, there's been a more sophisticated understanding of when that process has to happen, what can be saved, what cannot. And so there's a long, long history of that interaction this, relatively speaking, is the least invasive. We've also had a history of the military um, testing medicines and other things on service members unwittingly and even seeing lawsuits because of the consequences of those tests. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. We've seen sort of viral videos of kindergartner teachers really struggling and working really hard to keep their attention. They're doing anything they can to keep five-year-olds' attention on the screen. So I think because of that, parents across the country have opted out. Joining us now is Mackenzie Mays, reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Mackenzie. Thank you. I wanted to talk about how the coronavirus pandemic has been impacting kids and going back to school one of the interesting things is that, you know, we've been seeing enrollment in grades kindergarten through 12 kind of gradually decrease in recent years. But right now we're seeing abnormally low kindergarten numbers of enrollment. And a lot of people are saying is because parents are choosing not to send their kids to kindergarten. It's this weird thing of, well, they're going to be doing remote learning on computer screens. They don't want to do that. They might keep them in uh, other preschool type programs, do these learning pods looking for other avenues to give their kids that right type of education enrichment because they don't see it in this online kindergarten course type thing. So, Mackenzie, tell us a little bit more about that. 
I don't think a lot of people realize that kindergarten is optional. It's not legally required in about half of our states. And in normal years, kindergarten is sort of a no-brainer. It has really high participation rates, even though it's not legally required like other grades are. But this time around, as you said, Zoom lessons are not the same as the kindergarten we imagine during normal times. And it's been really difficult for parents to get five-year-olds especially to sit in front of a screen. We've seen sort of viral videos of kindergartner teachers really struggling and working really hard to keep their attention. They're doing anything they can to keep five-year-olds' attention on the screen. So I think because of that, parents across the country have opted out. And the story that I wrote is really about concerns about what that opting out means, because for some, that means, okay, we can prolong preschool or daycare or create our own pods. But for some families, it means kids are not getting a full year of instruction that they would have gotten otherwise. You did talk a lot about California and the decrease in numbers there, kids that were not enrolled. Share some of those numbers with us. At LA Unified, which is the second largest district in the country, the last numbers we got said kindergarten enrollment had decreased by nearly 6,000 students. And I think what was especially alarming there was that the superintendent had said that the neighborhoods that those kindergartners are represented in are the most low-income neighborhoods. So what that tells us is that likely essential workers who don't have the luxury of paying for an extra year of preschool or spending all day to supervise their kids are finding themselves without that option. Um, Some of the other stats were Fresno Unified, which is the state's third largest. I think they enroll more than 70,000 kids. They saw a drop-off of 1,000. Long Beach Unified had seen a drop-off of 700. And we know that enrollment has gradually decreased across all grades just because of like declining birth rates, but this is abnormal. We talked to superintendents and teachers across states, across the country, and heard just alarm bells being rang saying enrollment could cause uh, less funding next year because states are looking at attendance-based funding. So there's like skipping kindergarten can mean so many different implications for different groups of people. Tell us a little bit about the importance of kindergarten. You know, as we were talking about, there is preschool, but the kindergarten was this always seen as this kind of big transitional moment to getting that regular schedule going, increasing the lessons of math and language skills and socialization skills. Everything was kind of built on that, you know, so you can kind of succeed later on in your educational life. Yeah, for sure. I talked to a lot of early educators who are concerned because, you know, kindergarten is so much more than learning the ABCs, right? One educator talked to me about how children learn to self-soothe in kindergarten. So if they get really upset and nervous and cry, they're able to look around in this classroom for maybe the first time in their lives being in that environment and see that all the other kids aren't crying or they're not upset. And so that teaches them that, hey, it's okay. But if they're at home alone, they don't have a group of peers to sort of make them calm down in that way. And another important lesson they learn is to sort of fail and to persevere. And if they're learning to write their ABCs, a teacher can come over and erase the letter A and teach them how to write it correctly. And so there's all this hands-on instruction and socialization that in the best of circumstances at home, because of the coronavirus, they're just not getting. Mackenzie Mays, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.